Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, Ben here. This is A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers, my podcast, and thank you for being a listener. Got uh, the fantastic Magnum legend Ian Berry on this week, and I'll introduce him in a minute. First, well, happy birthday to A Small Voice, because, um, yeah, this week marks the eighth birthday of the podcast, so I normally like to at least give that a mention every year, because, you know, birthdays are important, as we know. Uh, at least they're kind of important. They seem important somewhat in some way. So, happy birthday to the pod. More important than that, though, there's going to be a celebration coming at the end of the month. For those of you in London especially, just uh, in case you didn't hear me mention that last time, and I will mention it one more time uh, before it happens, which will be on the next episode. But we're going to have a little celebration to mark the event of 1 million total downloads for the podcast. So that's something that's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Don't know exactly when, but um, who knows? The timing may work out just right. Either way, it's going to happen. So there's going to be a party at the Photobook Cafe uh, in Shoreditch here in London, and uh, you're all invited. So, yeah, if you can make it down Friday the 29th of September from about 6 till late um, there'll be previous guests, there will be listeners, there will be me, uh, all manner of people, hopefully. So, you know, let's um, let's have a drink and um, I will see you there. If you can't, obviously, if you are in Australia or the United States, um, you can't come and I wish you could. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll sort of, uh, I'll do something on Instagram or something like that. Anyway, this episode is supported by M. MPB, the largest global platform on which to buy, sell and trade your used photo and video kit. MPB is not a marketplace. They buy directly from sellers and evaluate all items before reselling approved kit with a dynamic pricing engine providing the right price upfront based on make, model, condition and market across a huge selection of camera bodies, lenses and accessories. Every item is inspected carefully by product specialists and comes with a six-month warranty, giving customers peace of mind that buying used doesn't mean sacrificing reliability. The MPB business model is 100% circular. They promote sustainability, diversity and inclusion in everything they do. All packaging is 100% plastic-free and their cloud-based platform uses 100% renewable electricity. And with first-class customer service, their users can receive support through the help centre or by speaking with an expert over the phone or via live chat. At MPB, there's equipment for everyone who wants to try something new, hone their skills or pursue their passion and it won't cost the earth. Visit mpb.com, a simple, safe and circular way to trade, upgrade and get paid for kit. So yeah, looking forward to that little event. Um, it's nice to just kind of get out into the world and see actual people in actual 3D. That's uh, something I've started to realise. Um there's too much uh, there's too much screen and there's too much remote bullshit and uh, I get really tired of it. The chats I have to do remotely sometimes and um, you know that was a sort of function of of COVID of course. I have just had COVID. I think I had that new strain. What's it called? I can't remember but um, it's very weird. It's made me feel strange. I still feel quite strange but I digress. I was talking about um, yeah, getting out into the world. So Anyway, it would be nice to see um, people there. And um, we're going to have a little exhibition. 
So I have asked all of my previous guests, I think there's about 170 something of them, to give me permission to uh, use uh, or to make a little 6x4 print of one of their images. And uh, a lot of them have been sending me files, for which I'm very grateful. And I'm going to make a bunch of prints and we're going to have a sort of a massive group show, which will be very sort of lo-fi and... Uh, and sort of, yeah, uh, unpretentious, don't um, expect uh, anything sort of high-end, but um, the pictures will be, that's the main thing. If you would like to become a member of this podcast, you can do so for £5 a month at pod.fan, where once you've done that, you will have access to a whole bunch of additional uh, exclusive member-only content, including a fortnightly uh, episode where I check in with a previous guest, and we feature the bonus questions from the guest who was on the week before that. There's also a thing called Photo Book Focus once a month. That might even become more frequent, actually. And that involves a photographer uh, doing a sort of live Zoom session, or at least it's live if you can make it, uh, presenting one of their books, something uh, that they recently made or something that's just come out. And that then goes on to the members page of my website uh, for your perusal if you couldn't make it live. All of that is free with your £5 a month membership. And in addition to that, I'm putting the archive also behind the same member-only paywall. So although the f- most recent 50 episodes of this podcast will always remain free on the main free feed, the archived episodes beyond the most recent 50 will be a member-only benefit. Uh, also, that uh, archive-only tier, you don't need to pay the full £5 a month if you just want to access the archive. That is £3 a month just to access what is n- currently over 150 uh, brilliant um, episodes. And obviously, as the years progress, we'll become uh, even more extensive. So, yeah, £3 a month to access the archive, £5 a month for the full membership. This episode is also brought to you by PickTime, the advanced online gallery platform that combines flexible, beautiful client galleries for seamless photo delivery. I won't carry on reading. I will just tell you, look, go to pick-time.com and have a look for yourself. If you want to be able to upload and share images with clients or with customers or, you know, if you're an art photographer and you just want uh, a platform on which to show your images and sell prints, then pick time might well be the answer to your um, problems. Uh, the solution, should we say, it is a very cool little platform and you can even have a blog. Um, so they've got all kinds of features, which I think you should check out. You can try it completely free for 30 days. Sign up for a trial period. Pick-time.com is the the uh, website and if you enter the code a small voice you can get an exclusive bonus month when upgrading to any pick time paid plan pick-time.com so let me introduce ian berry ian was born in lancashire england he made his reputation in south africa where he worked for the daily mail and later for drum magazine that's the south african daily mail i hasten to add at least i think it is he was the only photographer to document the massacre at sharpville in 1960 and his photographs were used in the trial to prove the victim's innocence Henri cartier bresson invited ian to join magnum in 1962 when he was based in paris 
He moved to London in 1964 to become the first contract photographer for the Observer magazine. Since then, assignments have taken him around the world. He has documented Russia's invasion of Czechoslovakia, conflicts in Israel, Ireland, Vietnam and the Congo, famine in Ethiopia and apartheid in South Africa. The major body of work produced in South Africa is represented in two of his books, Black and White's L'Afrique du Sud and Living Apart. Important editorial assignments have included work for National Geographic, Fortune, Stern, Geo, National Sunday Times, Esquire, Parry Match and Life. Ian has also reported on the political and social transformations in China and the former USSR. Recent projects have involved tracing the route of the Silk Road through Turkey, Iran and southern Central Asia to northern China for Condé Nast Traveller, photographing Berlin for a Stern supplement, the Three Gorges Dam project in China for the Telegraph magazine, Greenland for a book on climate control and child slavery in Africa. Ian's recent book, Water, published by Gost, brings together many classic images from Ian's extensive archive with material shot over the course of 15 years travelling the globe to document the inextricable links between landscape, life and water. The new book brings together a selection of the resulting images which collectively tell the story of man's complex relationship with water at a time when climate change demonstrates just how precariously water and life are intertwined. So, yeah, had a lovely chat with Ian. Uh, he talked about that book and that project. Um, he has uh, an extraordinary um, drive and uh, a, a, a quantity of energy which would be um, enviable for someone <laughs> one third of his age, I would think. And um, we talked a little bit about that. Um, no sign of Ian, you know, hanging up the cameras anytime soon. And um, that can only be a good thing because, uh, yeah, it was lovely to chat with him. Uh, what a gentleman. And uh, he was quite forthcoming uh, in talking about Magnum and all sorts of recent uh, issues. I probably missed out on a couple of good follow-up questions, which I'm feeling a bit sort of self-flagellatory about. But, you know, that's life. Sometimes you don't uh, do exactly as you wanted to. But anyway, I really hope you enjoy this chat I had with Ian Berry. I've been enjoying looking at water very much. What What a great book. Beautiful pictures. Are you pleased with how that came out? Um, pretty well, yeah. Um, Stu Smith, um, uh, he's pretty good who designed it, and uh, he really knows his stuff when it comes to the printers. Mm. Um, I went with him to Verona when it was being printed, and I was uh, absolutely amazed how meticulous he was. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think this was an eight-sheet book, and um, if... The sheet came out of the printer and there's one picture of the eight that he didn't like. It dumped it. And, right. I mean, it was amazing. At the end of the whole scene, a couple of days of there were sort of waste piles this high, you know. I mean, yeah. waste high. Yeah. Uh, which um, uh, I thought was pretty amazing. And yeah, yeah. I, if I was in that position i would want someone like Stu there on press for sure that's you know with his experience and all that Absolutely. um yeah what what interesting interested me in when in the sort of preparing for this chat i i realized of course that a lot of these images were sh shot in color you know they were they're digital yeah. um what what led you to decide that you know you were going to present them all as black and white um actually uh I think the decision was taken by Stu, right? Other than me, I um, and also um, a couple of the earlier 
pictures that um, set me off were shot on previous assignments and in color. Mm. Um, and so to make the whole thing, you know, run together, uh, it had to be all black and white. I think there's only one picture that suffered from being converted. Mm. Um, that was a picture in Bangladesh where um, in the sort of villages in the middle of Bangladesh where the government had installed uh, and NGOs had installed pumps, water pumps, in good faith, and at the time they were fine. But because of the dams that have been built to, in the north, the water table has changed with the result that the water now coming out is uh, the water table is drawing arsenic. Mm. And so they painted the uh, pumps red. Um, and there's this picture of this woman. I mean, as it, the picture works because her um, arms are covered in arsenic sores and the, the baby's face has these sores. But, of course, the pump's black and white, not red. Right. So it, it's, it rather lost its point. But Yeah. Anyway. I suppose it's kind of slightly disconcerting when, you, when you, you've seen a picture in colour and then you have to get used to it, you know, in black and white, or vice versa. There's something about that that's kind of a bit hard to process for your poor old brain to sort of realize oh yeah I, I remember how this looked in color kind of thing but it, it seems to work brilliantly with them all in black and white well to be honest i'm kind of a black and white photographer who shoots color yeah because the early part of my life you know 100 years ago I, everything was black and white um and it was only my sort of later years in uh, when i was in france uh, that I started to shoot colour. And indeed, um, when I came to England, um, uh, I had a contract with the Observer for five years for the magazine. And I think one of the reasons they hired me was because um, I was shooting colour. Right, yeah. To be a colour magazine, you know, and no, nobody else in England was shooting colour at that time. So yeah. very, very few people, anyway, except commercially. Yeah, of course, because I suppose I suppose people, you know, of a younger generation might not appreciate what a big deal that was to suddenly have these colour supplements. You know, I guess the Sunday Times was the the direct kind of competitor of the Observer. Indeed. Um, you know, at that point, and and uh, yeah, it was it was a big deal to to suddenly have this amazing you know colour publication. So they wanted to use that as much as they could. Exactly. Yeah, you really wouldn't know from from looking at them. They, you know that this kind of the, the look of this book, you know, is is very much sort of reminiscent of all those lovely sort of black and white, you know, Magnum tradition type um, books that you know I I know and love and that I have on on my shelves. But um, yeah, I, you've got a bit of a Photoshop guru that you work with who helps with the look of things, right? The, at the printers in Verona, they have a, a, a guy who s scans for them. And I must say, he was terrific. He mm. uh, uh, scans that I thought were perfectly acceptable. He worked on and improved uh, no end, in fact. Yeah, uh, I see. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, yeah, we, we will, we'll get all this sort of technical stuff out, out of the way because this is not, not very much um, part of this, the, the tradition of this podcast. We don't really get into that sort of stuff. It's much more about, you know, 
you and life and 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 uh, slightly more interesting things. But I, I obviously do want to ask you about the origins of this of this project because, as you said, some of these pictures were ones that you shot, you know, on assignment for various other reasons. You sort of brought things together that were already in your archive, and and then some of them you've gone and shot specifically. Is that basically the gist of it? Yes, there are a couple of things that, uh, I mean, what happened? I shot, I was shooting, uh, I work mostly in my professional life for French and German magazines uh, because I lived abroad and um, the magazines here were not as as good as I thought they should be. So I, I shot a whole edition for a German geographic magazine on um, on South Africa. And I was driving along uh, parallel to the coast in, uh, uh, I forget the names of places, but uh, mm-hmm. in Natal. And I saw these people in the water and they, they looked like they were drowning. So I went in and photographed them. It turned out they were a religious group and they believed in total immersion baptism Mm. anyway i shot it and then on another occasion i was coming back i'd been doing a shoot in west africa and i couldn't drive i'd driven down there because with a dormobile type vehicle a land rover and uh, i couldn't drive back i couldn't get the visa so i shipped to bombay and i was driving back through india and um, I'd flown my two young kids out, and uh, I thought they'd enjoy the drive. But they got this terrible eye bug in uh, uh, middle India somewhere, and uh, I was frankly scared stiff because, mm-hmm. you know, their eyes just closed out. So uh, I found that there was a... a a doctor specializing in this in uh, um, Benares, uh, what do we call it, Varanasi. And um, I went there, saw this guy, he said, it's fine, you just put your kids in a dark room for two weeks. So I spent two weeks in Varanasi, uh, which was terrific because I shot a lot. Um, It's, as you know, the Hindu main religious city Hmm. Um, so I shot a lot there and some quite good stuff and that brought me to thinking um, that it would be a good idea to do a long-term shoot on religion in water Um, which I started out I thought of the stuff I shot in South Africa some stuff I'd shot in uh, Azerbaijan which involved uh, fire and water. And and so I started in, and then I got this assignment from the uh, climate change people in this country um, to go to Greenland, which I did. And at that point, I decided rather than... Also, a friend of mine, Abbas, had done three books on religion, and uh, I thought I really couldn't compete with that. Mm. So I um, decided to uh, keep it to water and any climate change because I shot a lot of stuff in Greenland, which was fascinating. 
because the fishermen were able to go out more than a month earlier in the year because the uh, icebergs were melting and um, uh, they could just go out and fish. I mean, they had to be rather careful, sort of snaking in between the the ice that was coming off the iceberg. Um, but that was really the start of my changing and thinking more about just water rather mm. than any religious involvement. Yeah. Well, you ended up with a much more timely and uh, an important uh, topic in in doing that, obviously, because, you know, the, the climate change emergency is, is, you know, sort of forefront for all of, all of us now, or at least you'd hope it it was um but um but yeah you've 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 therefore created something which is incredibly sort of significant as far as that goes i guess we don't we think about the um the ice caps melting but water in general i suppose as i think you said somewhere you know that we live in a world where there's too much of it in in one place and not enough in another and that's sort of a kind of very succinct way of summing up the the issue but i guess you um, you learned more about the extent of the problem as you as you sort of went through the project, I presume. Absolutely. Um, I, there are things we don't think about, like the uh, um, places in Mexico, um, uh, the capital there, um, they're going to be uh, having to import water probably within about 20 years. Mm. Uh, Bangladesh has become a total basket case um, I mean I could go on about Bangladesh for hours but mm. it's a fascinating place and um, uh, from a variety of reasons not just the uh, uh, the problems of arsenic in the water but um, because of the monsoons coming from the south and, and the fact that they've cut down trees to a great extent, uh, the salt water comes further and further in. And whereas the Bangladesh used to be an exporter of rice, they're now um, importers. And they're trying to fish in the areas that... Um, um, Previously, they'd grown rice, but that's not working very well because the fish don't. They're using one type of fish and the salt water coming in doesn't do them any good either. Um, but I, I've been, I think, about three or four times to Bangladesh. And um, the last time I went, there had been a, a, a really bad monsoon and the people living in the south um, the water had come in and destroyed their levees and God knows what. So um, I decided to go. The irony is it's not that easy to get into places like Bangladesh. You have to get someone to back mm. you. So by the time you get there, what you'd originally hoped to see is partially gone. However, I went and... Um, I got a good uh, Bangladeshi um, uh, interpreter uh, who had lived in Australia, so he was essentially an Australian. With, um, and we went out to this place. Um, it was very difficult to get to. It was right in the southern tip. And we started driving, and then we got a boat, uh, and then we got to the sort of final 
point and uh, we had to get on a small 125cc motorbike. We got there, the guy said he'd wait and um, I went and shot for the day and it was pretty good stuff because they were rebuilding the levees without any help from the government, without any help from NGOs, literally by hand. I mean, the most sophisticated bit of equipment they had was a spade. So, you know, it was good stuff. Um, uh, there's a picture there that I really like of um, uh, the women bringing the sort of mud to, to the where they were building the levee, and the, there was a line of women passing a basket of mud along, one to the next, and so on. Uh, which, again, I guess you could say was better in color because their saris were very colorful. Anyway, um, I shot this. We went back and the, uh, the motorcycle had disappeared and we had to walk back. It was about six miles uh, to, to catch the boat. And in those days, I had uh, three Leicas and uh, a Nikon with a 70 to 200. I'm essentially a 28, 35, 50. 50 is my long lens, really. Yeah. And, um, we had to walk back and it was hot as Hades. And I, frankly, was totally buggered when I got got back to the point at which we caught the, the boat. And really, that's the point that also turned me into looking for smaller, smaller, more sophisticated cameras, if you like. Yeah. So what year was that, roughly? I, I'm going to be hopeless, Ben, on years. Okay. Okay. Um, it's probably... I think about three years before COVID. Oh, okay. So re really quite re relative. That would consider that to be relatively recently. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I must uh, admit that my, you know, one of my kind of first questions was uh, this kind of long-term thing that you've just kind of, you know, brought to a conclusion um, and, and talking about, you know, the six mile walk and all that stuff. I mean, I, I, where you find the energy in, I don't, I don't know. Cause a lot of photographers of, of your vintage, you know, have, are either, you know, taking it easy or, um, have already hung up the cameras and yet you're, you know, you're out there still, yeah. Taking on these quite physical, um, challenges. What, what sort of inspires you and drives you to carry on doing that? Apart from the fact that maybe you don't want to sit in your loft, you know? <laughs> well, that's, that's, I mean, goodness knows, what would one do if you retired? You'd, you'd, you'd go crazy, you know. Yeah. Although, in fact, in reality, I've got such a big archive that I can dig out another couple of books from the archive, you know. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I suppose I'm lucky. Um, I'm physically fit and um, I can do these things. Yeah. But, um, I understand it if someone my age wants to pack it up and watch television all day, but sure. I don't, you know. Um, I mean, it, it's fun. It's one of the things I've loved about this job, if you call it a job, I mean, I regard myself as an amateur photographer, really, mm. um, is that I love traveling. Mm. Um, and these days, uh, my wife likes to travel with me and very often... She comes with me. I mean, you know, we've been in situations where in India we've had to sleep in fields. And, you know, she's prepared to to do that. Right. Um, uh, so, 
you know, what the hell? You just go yeah. on, really. And uh, I've got well, a great. You, yeah. No, sorry, I didn't mean to jump in. No, oh, no I was just going to say you, you obviously, yeah, you married the right person there because uh, you're you're obviously a good a good match for each other uh, in that in that respect. And um, I suppose, yeah, it just I guess I, I just it keeps you. I guess it keeps you energized. I guess it's a sort of circular thing in a way. You know, one thing um, mm. feeds on the other. Um, you'd say that you're an amateur. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I like that thought I, I wanted to sort of go back and, and really sort of get a sense of the of the whole arc of of, of things because well how, how did you first get interested in photo- in photography initially was were you as a, was it as a as a kid or sort of teen or older than that um very much as a as a kid um when i say as a kid when i was sort of 15 16 yeah um i was interested in motorcycles um and i my father bought me a camera principally to photograph the motorcycles and to photograph motorcycle and car racing. My father raced cars, and so I, you know, um, wanted to sort of get involved in that. Oh, okay. But uh, I, I remember uh, I went to South Africa, I guess, when I was uh, 17, 18, um, showing my photographs to a guy there. You know, these photographs of motorcycles and so on. And uh, he said, yeah, well, these are technically okay, but is this what you want to photograph, really? There's a lot more to life than this. Right. Um, and I, I was very lucky because when I went to South Africa, the only guy my family knew was a photographer. And I had to get someone to guarantee me um, for the first year of my stay in South Africa I didn't need a visa or anything, but I had to get some, a guarantor. And uh, as luck would have it, he was um, a, a photographer who'd worked in America as an assistant to Ansel Adams, a guy called Roger Madden. And although he was um, mostly doing uh, commercial photography and everything shot on 4 by 5 and everything lit, um, but it was a great experience for me. Um, and, um, I mean, he was using Varigam, Dupont Varigam, multigrade paper for printing years before we were in this country. Um, so that was terrific. And, of course, then I got involved in other types. Of, I realized after the year that I wasn't that mm. interested in... Uh, in, a, in shooting 4x5 or doing commercial work. Yeah. But uh, I was lucky in that I ran into and became a friend of a German photographer, Jürgen Schaderberg, who was um, editing a magazine called Drum for Africans. And um, he suggested a job on a an African newspaper, which he didn't want to take, and I started then. And that kind of brought me into the political scene in South Africa. Um, and then I heard that there was a guy coming out to edit drum called Tom Hopkinson, who you're young, too young to remember, but he'd been editor of Picture Post in this country, which was a, a lifetime magazine. Um, and I thought there was a lot to be learnt from him about mm-hmm. magazine photography as opposed to newspaper 
photography, which is what I was at that point doing. Yeah. Uh, and he was terrific. A sort of early mentor. I suppose that was a big inflection point. I was thinking about how, you know, so much of these big kind of turning points in life are driven by just chance and, 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 and luck and stuff. It seems to be that's, that's you know, part of your story. That's the case for sure. Uh, totally luck. I mean, I, I think a photographer has to be lucky, mm. but I've sort of figured out I've been lucky all my life because not only did I learn a lot from Tom, he introduced me to Magnum. Yeah. Um, you know. Um, Huge moment. Which, yeah. And, and yeah, and he was the, the ideal person. Well, famously, you were the only photographer who photographed uh, the Sharpville massacre. Um, and I heard you say, you know, the, the, you don't think they're great pictures. Or you're, you're very, very sort of uh, candid in, in uh, admitting to, to the fact that they're, they're not great pictures. I think they, they might be better than you're um, suggesting they are. But um, nevertheless, they were, they were very significant because of the fact that you were the only one who got any. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, from a news point of view, um, it was, you know, amazing things to, 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 to see. But, um, from, you know, frankly, from a photographic point of view, at that time I had two Leicas, and I had a 35 and a 50. Um, my 50 ran out before the shooting uh, started, and uh, so I just had a Leica with a 35, taking pictures of people running towards me. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, frankly, it was the first time I was being involved in a shooting. And I didn't, re I just thought the police were firing over their heads to disperse the crowd. That or firing blanks. Mm. And it was only when a guy next to me fell that I realized they weren't. And uh, I got down on my belly on the field and... Uh, just went on shooting as people ran towards me. Nothing else I could do. Mm. Uh, and of course, when it, the shooting stopped, I was the only person standing in the field. But um, uh, I mean, frankly, crap photographs. I mean, again, a bit of luck because one of the guys, the kids running towards me, was holding his jacket over his head as though he could fend off the bullets. Right. Yeah. And uh, that, that was pure luck. I didn't, it's a terrible thing to say about that, an event like that, that it was luck that it made it a bit more interesting, you know. Mm. Um, but the amazing thing was that although the country shut down briefly and I thought there were going to be major changes, it took 10 years before real changes started to come about in South Africa. Yeah, and significantly longer than that for any for any you know for apartheid to to be exactly. sort of finally um, brought to a, an end. But yeah. yeah, there was even even in getting there, I think there was a little bit of luck because you know you were in a kind of uh, a, a sort of um, convoy of, of vehicles which all kind of got turned back, and you were in the only one that, that didn't. So again, there's sort of the kind of gods were on your side in that respect as well. Well, I kind of most of the other cars were foreign photographers working out of uh, um, working out of Joburg and, and, a, and a couple who'd arrived uh, just recently and they probably didn't know that much about uh, in, at that time you had to have a permit to be in an African township in the same way that uh, an African had to be have a pass to be in a white area mm. 
Um, but, you know, I kind of, uh, I, I just thought, what the hell, you know, let's see what happens. Yeah, if they yeah. arrest me, they arrest me, the magazine will bail me out, you know. Right. Um, so uh, as we were driving in following the, uh, uh, the military vehicles, um, the guy uh, in charge came back. We were, we were half a dozen vehicles and said, you better get out or you're going to be arrested. Uh, and most of them, I think about three vehicles stayed. And um, we went a bit further and the guy stopped again and said, look, you know, this is your last warning. And so the other two left. And I had a, a journalist with me, uh, Humphrey Tyler, who was driving the car. And I, we got to the uh, police station where uh, all the military vehicles went in. And I kind of summed up the situation, told the journalist, to go around the back of the police station and wait for me, mm. um, which he did. Um, it's one of those things, it's always harder for a journalist to get out of the way and stay there and not leave, you know. <laughs> so I told him to wait there, and uh, indeed I photographed in the crowd and spoke to them and so on. They recognized me as a foreigner. Uh, you, you know, if... Um, partially because of your English, um, partially because if your hair's a bit longer and you don't look like a rugby front row forward, and I'm fairly weedy, uh, they were quite happy to talk to me. And then I thought, nothing's going to happen. We might as well leave. Yeah. Walk back round the back of the police station to the car on the other side of the field. Uh, and I was talking to Humphrey and saying, well, what do you think? Should we go? And uh, suddenly the shooting broke out. So, you know, that was it. It was right. a mixture of luck and yeah. a bit of local, local savvy, really. Right place, right time and all that. Mm. Well, they say luck, luck doesn't happen by accident. Luck is where preparation meets opportunity. I've always liked that, that quote because it seems to, you know, I think it's a, a nice one. You know, it's sort of, a, I guess, you, you know, you're kind of making your own luck in, in a way uh, in, in all these situations by being there in the first place and, you know, by st sticking at it. But I mean, it, I guess the, the really important thing for you is that, is it true to say that that's the, the stuff that kind of drew, drew sort of, the attention of Magnum or that when you had your meeting with uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson, that was the stuff that you were showing him essentially? It, it actually was quite a bit after that because I tried initially to cover Africa from Johannesburg and it didn't work frankly because uh, partially I couldn't get the visas to get into a lot of countries coming from South Africa and in those days there were no across Africa. There was a once a week flight from uh, uh, from from Kenya, from Nairobi, across to West Africa. Um, I can't remember now whether it was the Cote d'Ivoire or Senegal. Anyway, it was a once a week flight, so you couldn't really cover the whole thing, uh, and it didn't sort of work out. But again, a, a run of luck. Um, I'd. At Tom's suggestion, I'd written to and sent photographs to Magnum in Paris and really had no response. 
um, you know, offering to cover Africa for for them, not knowing then that they didn't do that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, however, the uh, the then bureau chief was an ex Paris Match journalist, a good guy called Michel Chevalier, but I discovered that he didn't. I discovered later that he didn't speak any English, and I got no response. But then suddenly, out of the blue, I got an invite to come to Paris to work for a new agency which he was starting called Visa, and I thought. Let's do it, and so I went to Paris, and he was a a brilliant guy. I spent two years running around the world, but uh, I mean, you know, and I kind of thought I was God's gift to photography because I was doing so well. I was getting you know regular stuff in Match and Stern and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I didn't re- what I realized later, as I grew up a little bit, was that. Um, he was just pointing me in the right direction. He was anticipating news and getting me there before it happened. Um, you know, um, it was entirely his uh, efforts that, um, that got me doing so well. So only then after, anyway, tragically, um, well, I was invited to join Magnum. Mm. And... Um, uh, it was we didn't have all the rigmarole that now is to go to join Magnum. Um, you you were invited, and um, so fine. So I, a couple of the photographers there that I knew, uh, Mark Riboul or Annie Bury, um, they sort of invited me, and I went in and saw the bureau chief in at Magnum then, and he said I'll fix up an appointment with Henri because it's Henri who finally has to say yeah, he's the man or not, you know yeah exactly um, I mean I don't know whether you want me to sort of babble on about that there's no there is no babbling on I mean that's exactly what, what you're here for Ian and, and now I, I love to hear it but um, I, I was just interested in I, I think you know sort of the fact that maybe, uh, you know, the first meeting didn't go all that well or, or that, you know, you didn't feel it had. So there was a certain amount of uh, kind of perseverance there. I don't think he, he was all that. Um, was, was it that um, you had prints to show him and he likes to he liked to see contact sheets, I think, was probably the essence yeah, of it. Yeah, that, that was exactly it. I mean, I was still a member of Visa and doing rather well. So I was, you know, quite happy to be in Paris at that time. And it was enjoyable. Anyway, I went to see Henri, and um, uh, uh, I sat down with him in the in the coffee shop underneath our office at that time, or Magnum's office. And uh, the waiter came, and I, I'm a tea drinker, and you know, and I, I ordered coffee because I thought that was more suitable, you know, French. More but French. Henri ordered tea, and and. No Frenchman drank tea at that time. Um, and I hauled out my pictures, and he sort of shuffled through them like that. Um, and, you know, being a Brit, I didn't say, look, I think you're a great photographer. I, I didn't sort of try That's to really buffer him up in any way. You know, I just thought, well, this is what it is. You know, we just take it. And, uh, and he said, okay, and he left. 
And I went up to the office uh, shortly afterwards, and the bureau chief said, well, what do you do to him? He hates you. And uh, so uh, I told him what had happened, and he said, oh, Ari doesn't like to look at prints. He wants to look at contact sheets. He wants to see how you think. He said, I'll fix up another appointment, which he did, and I went back, and I ordered tea, and I brought along my contacts, <laughs> which Henri spent ages going through. And, um, and he said, uh, great, you know, good to have you. And I went upstairs afterwards, and they said, fine, you know, you're, uh, you're in Magnum. <laughs> that was it. Um, again, pure luck, actually. Um, but, you know, I was delighted to join Magnum, except the tragedy was that um, Michel Chevalier, um, who we, he, never spoke, he, he never spoke English, and, I, and my French was uh, um, kitchen French, um, but he was killed in a car smash, and the agency folded um, only a few months later, and I, I felt really bad about that. And you are, I, I think I'm right in, in saying you are the longest standing, uh, longest serving Magnum member as, as things, well. The longest, for, for, longest full member. Full member, yeah. I mean, there are people like Elliot who have become contributors. Right. Um, you know, but I'm actually the longest uh, full member, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever sort of got involved in the, all the sort of internal politics of Magnum or have, have you sort of tried to sort of stay away from that over the years? Um, I've been involved a lot in that I would, I'm the only guy who's been vice president in both Paris and London. Right. And uh, you can't avoid being somewhat involved. Yeah, of course. But um, <clears throat> now, because Magnum has changed so much, and photography has changed so much, let's face it, I mean, the mm -hmm. magazines, uh, I mean, last year I think I did two stories, you know, for magazines, that was it. Yeah. Um, whereas at the heyday, I was doing sort of 10, 20 stories, you know, a month. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, things have changed, and, and there we are. One has to accept it. Mm. And um, the photographers have changed. Um, I mean, Magnum has changed uh, beyond imagination, in fact. I, you know, mm. um, the early guys would be turning in their graves. If they, <laughs> if but, I mean, ha is there a way things could be made better uh, for, the, for the members? Like, uh, do you have any sort of um, opinions on, on what could change? Or do you feel like, it, you know, they're doing about as best, best they can with the current, you know, situation as it stands? I guess they're doing the best they can. I mean, the, the truth is that there are, um, uh, we must be close to 50-50. Um, call us what you like, photojournalists, documentary photographers, whatever, uh, who still believe in photography as such and having an eye and what have you. Uh, and then there's a group um, who mostly you know, they're flower photographers or corporate photographers only, or mm. um, it's, uh, and so there is a fair amount of friction uh, inside. I mean, there's always been a bit of friction, 
I remember at one meeting uh, many moons ago, um, at a meeting in Paris, and, and I was on the French side, and uh, of course, um, we still believed in true photojournalism or documentary photography, if you like. Um, but the Americans then were mostly starting to do commercial work, corporate photography, advertising. And I remember one time when I lost my cool with Burke Glenn um, uh, and said, you know, you buggers are not keeping to the magnum tradition and so on. And um, of course, within minutes, I regretted what I'd said mm. uh, because Bert was a terrific photographer, and the Americans were, I suppose, a good five years ahead of the Europeans in terms of um, the market failing and uh, and changing really, um, and they had recognised it, and we hadn't, and. Uh, Mm. You know, five years later, I just felt, well, I spoke to Bert and said, you know, God, I've always regretted this. Mm. Um, but he didn't take it, uh, he hadn't taken it badly. Right. But, you know, it, it, and it's changed again, dramatically. Yeah, I suspect um, those kind of um, disputes are still very much uh, happening now. I imagine that nothing much changes in that respect. I mean, yeah, the, the, the dynamic is probably the same as it ever was. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got a bit cool. Um, you know, we meet each other politely and uh, mm. smile at the annual general meetings and, and you know, differ. Um, I mean, the main office in Magnum is still in Paris and uh, it's the most successful office. We have um, a good staff there, mm. a, a really good editorial person. I mean, we haven't had an edi editorial person in London for 20 years or something, or maybe not quite that long, but uh, so nobody's been pushing for any sort of editorial or similar mm. photography, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, maybe, maybe it's partly, a, yeah, sign of the times that that, that sort of thing mm. is, um, it is just kind of not a thing anymore to, to a large extent anyway. Yeah. Um, but um, and I heard you say you think you know think of quitting every year, or at one point you thought of quitting every year, but you never you never did. When was the fun times for you? Like, what what when do you think of the sort of golden era, as it were? You know, like when was it just fun? Uh, I seventies, early eighties, um, through the eighties, I guess it uh, it survived, mm. and then it started to dribble off. Right. Um, and, you know, the magazines I'd worked for started doing more kind of, um, what do we call it, you know, movie, uh, actor type stuff. Mm. Um, and, um, I mean, I did a bit of it and I worked on a couple of films, um, which is a fairly boring thing. Um, I wasn't, um, I, I wasn't working as a, a stills photographer for the, the the company, the film company, but they in those days they would hire you to be there to shoot uh, whatever you wanted, in the hope that you would sell it to magazines to publicise the film. Right. Um, but then uh, what happened was some of the other agency realised 
the value of being on the set and started to pay to be there rather than being paid. Yeah. So that was, you know, more or less the end of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I suppose, I suppose, in a way, you know, you're you're of the generation where you um, w- worked through the, a sort of golden age for photography. I mean, I, you know, we're, now we're dealing with you know the sort of uh, rise of uh, artificial intelligence and God alone knows what else, and and the sort of breakdown of the of the traditional kind of means of uh, income with the editorial market and all that stuff do you do you feel that that way do you feel sort of quite lucky that that you know you were of that time when you know things could well you were able to just do those kind of fantastic uh, stories and and do all that yeah. traveling and make it all work yeah i mean you know at that time um uh, uh, the magnum bureau chief in paris would say look he wants to go and do this in africa and they would say, okay, we'll put up a thousand dollars for him to have first look when he comes back. Um, so at least your expenses were paid, even if you didn't get an assignment. Sometimes you got an assignment. But um, now, if you phone Perry Match and say, I want to go off to China to do this, they will say, that, that sounds good. Let's have a look when you come back. Yeah. But they won't put up anything. And so this this book, um, has I financed it myself? Yeah, yeah. You did a Kickstarter campaign, didn't you? Yeah, but you know all the travel and stuff. I did um, no backing from Magnum. No, no. Um, well, actually, that's not true. The actual climate change assignment came through Magnum, mm. so in a way, they set me off. But uh, since then, uh, I travel all around the world doing stuff and. Uh, uh, until I got a bit bored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really all about about trying to 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 pay the bills as always. But I I think there are still lots of people who are as you know committed to documentary photography and photojournalism as they ever were. I mean, what what's your little level of optimism as far as you know it sort of re- remaining uh, an important part of our sort of cultural landscape photography? Well, um, I for a while started to give uh, workshops. Um, But I was giving workshops to young photographers who wanted to become photojournalists. And I started to think, you know, do I have a moral... I mean, can I really do this? Because what are they going to do? You know, it's not really possible to make a living out of photojournalism anymore because very few people will back you to spend any time on a story. Um, I mean, I was talking to Peter Dench earlier in the week, and, uh, you know, he was telling me how now the sun... I mean, the Observer sent me off to photograph Canada, and I drove from Vancouver to uh, Newfoundland with um, a a side trip up to Hudson's Bay and uh, so on. And, uh, you know, two or three weeks, I've done shoots for the Geographic when uh, um, I've had a month to do something. Mm. Um, But all that is now closing down. As Peter said, you know, now the Sunday Times want you to do something in a half a day. Yeah, you can't do Canada in half a day, that's for sure. It's tricky. (laughs) It's it's a big country. Really, really tricky, yeah. Um, So, 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and, and I stopped doing uh, workshops because um, there was a rather unpleasant situation where one of the Magnum photographers was accused of some sort of harassment by one of his students. Yeah. And um, uh, he hadn't physically done anything. And, and Magnum, the present crowd in Magnum, decided that um, they wouldn't support him. Mm. Well, uh, just to be clear, we're talking about David Allen Harvey here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously a matter of public record, so we're not uh, right. you know, betraying yeah. any yeah. Uh, sort of confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that, that sort of put you off just because you didn't want to. I, I <laughs> mean, you can be harassed anytime, you know. I mean, unfortunately, I've never been harassed by any of the ladies in my. But it, 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 it works both ways. Um, mm. And then we spent a lot of money on a New York uh, lawyer who um, put out this thing which you've got to sign, which is a joke. Um, uh, you know, an anti-harassment thing. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's laughable. And I didn't sign it the first uh, year or so. And this last time I was told, well, if you don't sign it, um, you'll be banned from the Magnum office. Right. And, and, you know, I'm the oldest bloody photographer in Magnum. I mean, mm -hmm. not the oldest photographer, but the oldest member. Yeah, yeah. And what was the intention? They're trying to just get you to sort of a, a formally uh, sort of give an assurance that you're not going to, um, you know, grope anyone or, or, or yeah. you know, what? Yeah. Okay. And, and so obviously, in a way, they're trying to get ahead of any potential, you know, sure. Uh, liability and etc yeah. and, and you can sort of understand it in the light of what they've you know what yes, they've but, had to deal with but the jokerly way this was uh, written i mean it, it it would never stand in in this country right i, mean, I, I asked uh, a lawyer with whom i did and he looked at it and laughed at it and said you know just ignore it right um but which i did for a couple of years but um you know when magnum becomes I don't know. Um, we're too woke. I mean, mm. life is too woke at the moment. I mean, for, for someone like me, you know. Right, right. Yeah, you feel that, do you? I do, very mm. much so. Um, that, that, that sort of political correctness has gone um, too far. <laughs> exactly, far in, too far. In, in the woke direction. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's, a, that's very much a sort of conversation um, that is uh you know yeah be, being had and i think um it needs to be had you know and, and uh it's it, the, the sort of battle lines have been drawn there <laughs> recently um but it is a it is a complex and nuanced sort of um issue as well so in some respects it needs to be treated you know in that in that way that it's uh it requires a lot of um patience really and uh yeah i think there's a lack of that at the moment it, everything's become you know the sort of identity politics has uh sort of taken over the the debate in a way i think that's a shame yeah it is and and you know i mean i i recently had someone who wants to join magnum and i came went to london to look at her pictures and i looked at them and i thought why on earth would you want to join Magnum? You know, Magnum can't do anything for her. Mm. And, and I said, you know, frankly, this is not my type of photography. 
why would you want to join? And she said, oh, I want to get an in uh, into um, gallery photography. And she thought that Magnum would get her, get her an in to that sort of thing. And, and uh, she's probably right. That's about it. You know, it's, it's a useful name to bandy about. Mm. But, um, but, well, anyway, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, but it was, she was more on the sort of fine art side of things rather yes. than... Yeah. And I, yeah. I suppose, yeah, I suppose the opportunity now, um, you know, those kind of uh, categories or those those pigeonholes have have definitely broken down a lot in, in recent years. And, and, you know, Magnum has responded to the times in a, in, in a sense, because there there's a great diversity of of photographers in, in Magnum now, which I guess sure. there never were before. Everyone's still sort of, I think, fundamentally interested in uh, telling stories, I suppose. In, a, in one way or another. It's just different ways of doing that now, I guess. Hmm, I wonder. Um, I, I, I Honestly, I don't know, because, um, I, frankly, half the photographers that have joined recently, I, I wouldn't recognise them in the street. So No, of course. Uh, you know, we came across somebody the other day, and uh, he told me, oh, he was a member of Magnum. And I'd never heard of him. <laughs> and uh, when I really pushed him, he said, well, no, but I've applied to join Magnum and I will oh. be a member of Magnum. Well, that's a bit different. <laughs> um, I admire his uh, confidence and optimism. Yeah, well, yes, but um, not very honest. No, but is it is it because there, I mean, obviously there are a lot of photographers, maybe there are more photographers now to keep track, to keep tabs on. But do you feel like there was more of a sense of family, even if it were a dysfunctional family, uh, in the past? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I remember once in Paris, I was uh, asleep in bed at two o'clock in the morning, and I got a phone call, and it was Marc Rabou, and he said, "Look, you know, I just got my stuff back from the lab. Come over and help me edit it," and I did. Mm. And um, and one learns all the time. Uh, he sort of said, look, these got these two pictures. Which one should I include in the edit? And one was a horizontal, which was a great picture. I mean, it really worked as a shape. It had a good moment and mm. good reaction. And the other was more or less a vertical. Um, well, it was a vertical, but I, for me, it didn't really sort of mean anything but I looked at it and I thought it was interesting and I said of course you've got to go for the vertical for the horizontal mm. he said no look closer and uh, the woman in the who was the sort of sent the key in the picture um, in the vertical you could see that her feet were bound which is almost non-existent anymore in in, in, in China you just don't mm. see it. it's not done anymore and he said, "This is the uh, um, this is the picture that everyone will use." And indeed, it was a couple of days later on the front of Le Mans. Right, that, and you hadn't uh, seen that all important detail. No, no yeah. I was looking at the whole shape, the whole what was going on, and you know. Uh, mm. So you you learn. I mean, I, I was looking. I was wandering around killing time in the office the other day, and I came across a little book like that. Um, 
which was just portraits by Steve McCurry. Um, and there were terrific portraits in there. And I kind of thought, why in my life have I never done that? You know, I shoot a portrait, I'm, I'm trying to photograph, trying to relate the person to the background. Um, so I, I very rarely just shoot a tight head. I mean, unless I'm shooting for Newsweek or something, or you know. Mm. But, but he does it at the end, and, you know, people are always looking at him. Um, but it's a great little book. Yeah. Uh, so you can kind of get, be inspired by the way other people do things um, when, that aren't the way that you would. Actually, it's, I'm glad you sort of raised this because I wanted to come back to that whole thing of Cartier-Bresson and, and his uh, his uh, proclivity for looking at contact sheets. I, lo I love looking at contact sheets. You must have looked at some pretty good ones over the years from some of your uh, Magnum colleagues. And that's a bit of a shame with uh, digital that, you know, that, that's exactly. one thing I, I miss a lot, you know, because yeah. there is something great about looking at contact sheets. And I think it is to do with, like you say, you do get a sense of how that person is working and thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, it's fascinating. You, wh who, whose contact sheets have you looked at over the years? Well, I used to go into the office at night. Um, I had a key to the office in those days in Paris. And so I could just look through. So obviously very early on, I looked through Henri. But then, um, you know, I looked through Marc, Marc Ribou and René Bourré. And uh, I remember one night looking through Bruce Davidson, uh, who's a terrific photographer, I think. Um, but I went through these contact sheets, one after the other after the other, and none of them were marked up on mm. the story. And they were kind of all over the place. And um, uh, finally I came across this one picture marked up. Great picture, you know. Um, but not the same thought sort of process going. It was just there, you know, in the middle of... Mm. Nothing either. So. Right, right. And, and we all have different ways of working. Um, exactly. Yeah. Some people are very methodical. You can see that there's a real kind of a real kind of discipline to it. Exactly. And then other people, like you say, more like that Bruce Davidson thing, where it's like kind of all kinds of chaotic rubbish, and then suddenly there's a sort of this little diamond in the middle of the. Yeah. Of the I mean, I wouldn't say it was chaotic not chaotic. Rubbish. Well, I'm not talking about but, Bruce. But, but not, you know, not. You didn't see. I didn't see what had led up to it. It was yeah, just exactly. there, yeah. you know. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's, uh, I've only uh, introduced myself to three photographers in that came into Magnum. Um, I guess Philip Jones Griffiths, who was a friend of mine from way back, um, and um, uh, Gilles, Gilles Perez, who was a. a, a another friend, and Abbas. Mm. And I guess we all had the same kind of approach. Um, uh, uh, maybe a social approach to photography and what was going on in the world. Um, and there were three that I really, I really loved. But yeah. um, it uh, they've all sort of died in recent years. You know, mm. it's terrible. I mean, mm. you know, Bruno, uh, Bruno Barbe, who was a great color photographer, um, Rene, of course. But um, yeah, yeah. And uh, some of those other names you mentioned, Mark Ribot, he he died fairly young. He was killed in an accident, I think, if I remember. No, right. not 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 Rene. No, he no Mark Mark uh, 
Uh, Werner Bischoff was killed in an accident. Oh, Werner Bischoff, maybe uh, I'm thinking of, uh, yeah. Of yeah. course, Bob Carper. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, Gilles Perez is still with us. Um, he is, very and much I, so. I'd love to, I'd very much love to talk to Gilles, Gilles on, on the podcast. I hope I, one, one day I'll, I'll, you know, in the near future I'll... Um, um, persuade him. I haven't actually invited him yet, but I'd love to and see if he'll chat with me. It'd be well worth it. Yeah, well I know. I know he would. I know he's you know legendary, and um, you know we've all got a copy of uh, Telex Iran on our shelf somewhere. Yeah. And so, like, what for you? Like, do you feel like this water project is? Do you think there'll be another? big thing like that for you or what how are you thinking about you know what you still want to shoot basically well i don't know frankly because i've got a couple of um pictures that i want to pull out of my archive more or less but i'm doing a little bit on it um and then i hope one of these days do a retrospective yeah of course because i've got acres of uh acres of color that you know i have to look at mm. um, because you know in the in the days you you went out you shot a story you came back uh, you gave the best of the color to the magazine you kept the rest and then you're off on another assignment and so you forgot to recover I've never given up copyright um, so you forget to recover the stuff from the magazine and half of them don't send it back anyway right. and you know magnum's sort of too busy to recover it yeah i mean i, I discovered the other day that i'd done a story for a magazine in, in this country which was a very enjoyable shoot to do and they had kept the prints and uh, had actually copied the prints and were actually selling them <laughs> Right, right. I, I know, it's just pretty amazing that anyone would think that um, they had the right to do that. It's mm. just astounding, but, you know. Well, uh, yeah, more about trying to get away with it, knowing knowing that they don't, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I'll keep an eye out for what's to come, and, and um, thank you so much for, for chatting with me. I've re really enjo enjoyed it, and, um, you know, I really appreciate you doing it. So, so thank you for joining me, and... Uh, yeah, the, the book is Water, by, uh, published by Ghost. Uh, and th thank you so much for chatting with me. Uh, it was a pleasure.